I'd love to invite Caroline Griffin up to, uh, she's going to help us today um, to do our gospel reading. So maybe you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Caroline is going to read today's reading uh, for us. Thank you, Caroline. The temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command, his, command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. Okay. Um, We're a Jesus community here, and uh, so we're in a series um, from Lent until Easter, and uh, it's called Encountering Jesus. And the goal of this series is for us to discover, rediscover the real Jesus in the Gospels. And we proclaim that as Christians, um, particularly in the West, the problem we have, I think, is is that in the in the West, in the in the Judeo, we're shaped so much by Judeo-Christian values, like I shared last week, and we're in a sense um, hung over from the ghost of Christendom, where the state and church were one and the same thing. And this, this Christian story has been told and retold, appropriated, misused, interpreted and applied to so many different agendas that we've ended up with a Jesus that um, is so overlaid with alternative meanings that it can become really, really difficult to see Jesus or hear Jesus and his words for us. C.S. Lewis said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. He must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else it was a madman or some, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. It's really strong words from C.S. Lewis about the very nature of Jesus. And it really requires us to get the grips personally with who he is. Because we've got this temptation, as I shared, to really tame Jesus or construct Jesus in our own making. Um, The claims that he makes upon us. Um, It's sometimes completely unlike um, the claims that we find in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we find a person who's unlike any other person that we maybe have come across. A person whose claims and character require from us to accept him as God's son or reject him as maybe just another self-deluded demagogue. And the ideas we have of Jesus 
can become so lost in translation, so skewed that we cannot see Jesus for who he really is or hear what he has to say. I don't know about you, one of my favorite movie trilogies is the Batman trilogies by Christopher Nolan. Has anybody seen those? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um, and a lot of people say that the, the second one, The Dark Knight, is uh, the f- their favorite movie. But it's for me, it's Batman Begins that I really love because it, it tells the, the, the most fascinating part of Batman's story, his origin story, the, the, that part where Bruce Wayne is traveling the world, training, uh, transcending himself and his fears to become this mythical figure that cannot be dis- destroyed. Everything that we intuitively love about Batman is brought to life in this story, this origin story. And in a sense today we're looking at for the next 25 minutes or so, hopefully the significant part of Jesus' story is a little bit of his origin story. Uh, Many movies have been made about Jesus that focus even on this particular event that we've just read about in the gospel um, that Caroline brought us, where Jesus goes into the Judean wilderness and is tempted. This is ground zero for Jesus' ministry. Um, And if we spend some time here, we may encounter this real Jesus. Let me just give you some context for this, okay? So Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He's he's not quite started his ministry, um, but he has been baptized. um, And you remember in that encounter, John the baptizer, um, he he baptizes Jesus in a part of the the River Jordan. And the, the God the Father speaks over Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well Please, and Jesus at that moment then receives the Holy Spirit like a dove and light shine on Jesus, confirming his identity as the Son of God to those all around him, but also I believe to him himself. Deep in his soul, this was a moment of affirmation. And then Jesus doesn't just stumble out into the wilderness after that, but he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days of prayer and fasting. That's actually where we get this Christian practice, this Christian season of Lent. It comes from this particular story in the life of Jesus. He goes out into the, de- the desert, the wilderness, rugged, arid wilderness. He's hung- hungry and he's praying and fasting. He's being pushed to the limit. And... Uh, He's been tested, there's a trial, there's a temptation. The question might be that arises in your, in your mind is why? why? Why is this necessary? Why is the temptation of Jesus necessary? Um, when we look at our own lives, I guess if, if I can invite you to look at your own life just for a minute as we begin, I guess we have to admit that it really is when we go through times of trial where we tend to really grow where we tend to really mature. When things are going well, we don't need to grow. We can be in cruise control. But when there is some kind of disruption, some kind of conflict, some kind of challenge, we find ourselves often moved, forced in a sense, led to growth, to growing. Um, most of the time we move through life and we're invited to trust in God by faith in these in these moments, and we can often look back after a trial, after a test, after a challenging period of our lives, we can look back and we can see God's hand on our lives. We can see his hand on us. Um, But uh, it's in the midst of the trial often um, that we um, are trying to often fix things, solve things ourselves, put things right ourselves. And so it's in our trials, it's in those difficult moments in life that we get to experience, I believe, a growth moment, an an invitation to increased intimacy with God, um, a new relationship with God or a renewal of God. And trials and challenges can lead us 
there. Eugene Peterson says that every testing is designed to deepen and to develop the life of faith. If you're in a trial and a testing, then know that God is right there in the midst of it with you today. If today you find yourself in the midst of challenge, difficult circumstances, testing circumstances, I want to speak over your life today that God is with you right in the midst of that. Whether you can know it or not, He is there. We, we assume, uh, particularly in, in the West, when we have a lot of things going for us, that life by default should just be smooth and easy. Like, that's what we aim for. And if it's not smooth and easy, we nearly think there must, something must be going wrong. If it's not smooth and easy, something's going wrong and it's somebody else's fault. Someone's to blame. What we find in the Gospels is that this really is, is a lie. That, that life is difficult, that there are just challenges just because, because life is a challenge. Life is a fight. Life is testing. Life, there are trials. We all, there's so many people in this room today, and I'm sure you know the trials that you have lived through and are even, maybe even living through, and that is life, and there is an invitation for us as people who follow Jesus to place ruthless trust in God, absolute ruthless trust in God, knowing that life is a life of faith, not certainty. And if we are failing and things are not going the way that we hoped, that is not something to be fearful of because God is in the midst of it. It is what life is like. And Jesus in this passage is preparing to launch his work. He's been in the backwater of Nazareth. Now is his time. He's been... Uh, spending time in his, with his family and his community in Nazareth, but he's been hearing that John the baptizer has been preaching that the kingdom of God is near, and so it's time for Jesus to move beyond Nazareth, to take up the, the challenge of his life mission. But first, the test, the trial. And how is this a trial? How is this passage that Caroline read so, so brilliantly for us this morning, how is that actually a trial? Well, Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, and he's hungry, and he's at the end of, of that time, and he gets these three temptations. You'll have heard it before. Three temptations from the devil, from the tempter, as it says in verse 3. And these temptations, they're really aimed at challenging Jesus about the how of Jesus' mission, how he might fulfill his mission to bring God's kingdom Jesus has been preparing himself for the mission and asking, how do I bring the reign of God to this world? There are these expectations on Jesus and these temptations arise, pushing him to decide how this kingdom of God is gonna come to be. Have you ever had a moment when you've questioned yourself, where you've second-guessed, where you've thought again and again this is the kind of moment, I guess, just before Jesus' mission where he, he gets to pause and have a think again about what he's about to do and the kind of ruthless trust that he's going to need if he's going to step out into the mission that God's got him for. Jesus knows what that's like if you've experienced that. There's a couple of things that we should note before we examine these temptations closer. Uh, this passage talks about the, the devil, the tempter, the Satan. Now, this isn't the kind of pitchfork, um, red creature with horns, 
playing deal or no deal with Jesus. This is not the kind of satirical parody that we imagine. We can speculate just how the devil came to Jesus. Was he this distinct creature that just walked up to Jesus in this test and started to talk to him? Well, maybe that's the way it's depicted in a lot of religious art. But perhaps, perhaps, the temptations come to Jesus much in the same way that they come to you or they come to me. They come through thoughts. They come through a dark uh, mental battle. And they enter the mind, particularly at the point of desperation, particularly at the point of hunger, extreme hunger. You know, it's easy, isn't it, I guess, to resist evil when it's right in your face, you would imagine, when it's clearly evil. And I believe these temptations of Jesus were real temptations. They were, they were real, but they were subtle. They were not overt. And these temptations were disguised as good ideas. I think we have to reckon that the devil in this passage, the tempter, is coming to Jesus much in the same way that the tempter comes to you or comes to me, deep in our own thinking, subtle and deceitful. We all have temptations and trials, but we, we need to know that every test and every temptation and every trial matters. I was reading this fascinating article during the week. Um, now, when I mention uh, the word Adolf Hitler to you, you will think of, uh, I imagine, evil personified. A lot of people, that's the opinion of Adolf Hitler, and I don't think any of us will disagree with that. Yet there's this movie, I can't remember the name of the movie, of Adolf Hitler, and it focuses not on the last third of his life, but an earlier moment just after the First World War when this 30-year-old Hitler was an altogether marginal person whose future was totally up for grabs. And the movie was really controversial because, well, people working on the movie reminded the director that Hitler was a monster. And they criticized this director for focusing on this early part of his life because it depicted Hitler's humanity, his flawed humanity. It nearly invited a little bit of sympathy, they said. But the director came back against that and said, yes, that he did want to depict Hitler as human, like us, but not so that he would seem less monstrous. Here's what the director Mino Melez said, it said, and it hit me, Hitler, who I've always thought of as a demented monster, who wasn't human at all, was really just like us. He wasn't born a monster or spawned a monster. He actually decided to become a monster because he tried becoming an artist and found that being a monster was easier. Once I had that realization, the film seemed right in front of me. The movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes, the audience knows all about those. This is about the small sins, his emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way he collects and nurtures offenses, because those are the sins that we can see when we look in a mirror. Hitler, like Osama and Saddam and Milosevic, obliges us by representing an uncomplicated picture of evil. But nobody wakes up one day and slaughters thousands. They make choices one at a time. It just hit me when I read that because we all make choices one at a time. And I'm so glad about the choices that Jesus made in this passage in the Gospels in the temptations. 
I don't know about you, my day when I'm encountering um, my challenges, I'm not um, coming up against personified evil. I feel like it would be easy. I'm not, it's not like we're Jedis facing the dark Sith or Frodo and the ring. It would be more obvious and easy to face. Life is full of temptations. And there are temptations that are subtle and real and sneaky, and they're disguised often as really good ideas. And here in this passage, the devil's at his work, inviting Jesus to maybe make choices that would undermine his whole ministry. Here we get to encounter the real Jesus, though. Before he rises from the grave, before he ascends to the Father, before he comes into glory, Christ is born in the unknown, and he's fighting in the unknown on his own in the wilderness, behind closed doors. Jesus has faced those tests, and those tests are there for us too. There's two kingdoms at work in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And with each one, we are invited with each choice to move toward one and away from the other. Let's look quickly at these three temptations disguised as good ideas that Jesus seeks to move away from uh, the kingdom of darkness and toward the kingdom of God. At the end of a 40-day, the very, very first one is, is bread. At the end of the 40-day fast, the first temptation that comes Jesus' way is to turn stones into bread. Note that the, the devil says, if you're God's son, he's, he's challenging Jesus' identity that was rooted in the baptism passage just before this. If you're God's son, why don't you use this for your own advantage? It's interesting that the tempter knows who Jesus is. The tempter knows who Jesus is. He knows there's a lot at stake here. These temptations have the power to undermine the Christ mission, um, the Christ project. They're a threat to his kingdom, and Jesus is a real threat. So you're hungry, Jesus, comes the temptation. Turn these stones to bread. Remember, you know, Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days without food, but he's going to be leaving the wilderness soon. So I, when I look at this, I don't think that Jesus is, is nearly thinking about literally turning these stones into bread for himself. He's going to get something to eat soon. I think there's more going on here than meets the eye. Have you ever seen a, a, car, a Christmas carol? Have you seen that? Have you read that? Um, it's, it recounts the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future that that take him through these three dreamlike scenes. I think it's a little bit like what's going on here. The temptation for Christ is presented to him in these three different scenarios, these three different scenes about how he might establish God's kingdom on earth. Go on, Jesus. Prove you're the Son of God by turning these stones into bread. You could meet people's material needs. You've got the power to meet people's needs. Can you imagine that? You're, you're facing this this mission on earth, and there's an option to go, you know, I could just, I could do this, but I, I could not go the path of the cross. I could simply try to meet people's needs. But Jesus, he sees this for what it is, is, is satanic. He says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here we see Jesus negotiating this first temptation. Hunger, material, immediate needs are important, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Bread is a good idea, but it's not enough for a meaningful existence. The soul will collapse on itself if all we are doing is meeting material needs. The reminder here for us is that we need the word of God to feed our hunger. We need God feeding our soul. 
Jesus knows this and he resists the appeal of being a Messiah that comes to just win people over by giving them what they want. Fill in the blank. What's been a good idea in your life that the tempter has come to try and convince you is enough for your soul? Man shall not live by fill in the blank. Money, comfortable clothes, a solid job, decent salary, good theology, community, things going well, politics, a gym membership, marriage, kids, nice house, two holidays a year. Some ideas are good ideas, but they're not enough to carry the freight of our soul. And Jesus knew this. He knew that his mission was to reconnect humanity to God, to draw humanity into the presence of God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I guess the temptation for us as, as Christians following the way of Jesus is that um, we can try and just meet people's material needs. We can just try and serve the immediate material needs that are in front of us. And the temptation is that we can do that without God, that we can do that without a life tethered to God. We cannot have the kingdom without the king, Redeemer. And this is always the temptation, always the lie disguised as a good idea. But instead, we need to live by God's word, to feed on his word, to worship him. So Jesus negotiates this first temptation not to co cooperate with the modern notion of simply meeting material needs. And he resists this temptation to build his kingdom on material prosperity alone. The second temptation the devil leads Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus imagines himself in the second scene presented before him at the high point of the temple. And he is tempted to throw himself off as a kind of miracle stunt. And the angels would leap to his help and save him, just as the scriptures said they would. So it's not just a good idea, but the, the devil, the tempter, is actually using scripture from Psalm 91 that God would command his angels concerning him and keep him from striking his foot against the stone. A good idea, backed up with scripture, but here's the temptation that Jesus faces. It's to have his moment, his glory through spectacle and through circus, that the people would be in awe and would bow down and worship him instantly. And so immediately Jesus sees the subtlety of this temptation and he says, it is written that you should not put the Lord your God to the test. It's interesting that Jesus keeps quoting scripture. He's a, he's a man that is deeply formed in the story of God and the scriptures of God. And it raises the question, though, to us, doesn't it, when you think about this temptation? Sometimes we wonder, well, if Jesus did do something like this, if he just showed up, then everyone would believe. If he, if he showed up in my life with a sign or a miracle, if he just made it happen, then we would run to him, we would flock to him. Why is God never more obvious to us? Why does he not send me a sign? Why does he not just convince us? Wouldn't it be easier if God simply showed up that way? Wouldn't it be easier to believe in him? Would it be easier to trust him and love him? But Jesus, the one that we encounter in the Gospels, resists the lure of spectacle. And I think it's because there's a freedom here that God honors. As part of the universe, he does not force himself upon people. He doesn't seek to persuade, but he invites people to faith, a life of faith, 
We are free and authentic beings that have the capacity to believe, the capacity to practice faith, the capacity to doubt. As Frederick Buchner said, if there was no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. Dostoevsky calls this God's miracle of restraint. Kierkegaard calls this God's light touch, that God would not override our freedom. And Jesus does not want the kingdom to come like a puppet master manipulating puppets on a string, but instead he woos us by his love. He invites us to faith. He calls us to trust in him. I think we, look, we live in a, a culture that really loves the spectacle. We love the Las Vegas of the soul. We love to be entertained. Sometimes I do too. Sometimes do we put those demands on Jesus to show up in our lives, to break into our lives with a sign? If only he could just be really obvious. But I want to encourage us today that Jesus invites us to quiet faith. He says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I want to encourage you today. If you feel like faith is just simply, this, your faith is the size of like a, like a mustard seed, I want to say that that is a good thing and that God affirms that. Our faith can be like the size of a mustard seed, but it is true and beautiful and can bear much fruit. So here in this second temptation, the temptation to spectacle Jesus resists, to build his kingdom around that. Third temptation and the third scene that comes before Jesus, it seems like a really good idea, is that the tempter shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world the empires and all their splendor. Egypt, Syria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Think of all the empires and armies. And the devil invites Jesus to simply bow down before him. All these kingdoms would be his. The tempter here is insisting that these kingdoms are his to give to Jesus and that Jesus would simply be the recipient of them instantly. No need to go to the cross, Jesus. No need to go the hard way, Jesus. Simply just bow down to me and you'll have it all. Was Jesus tempted in this moment? Was, was he really tempted to worship the devil? I believe he was tempted by that satanic lure of seizing the world by force and by power. This was the temptation to misuse power. This was the temptation to make Israel great again. I can think of many, many, many stories in our news cycle today of misuse of power. I can think of many stories where women have been abused, where children have been abused, where fellow men have been abused because of the misuse of power. Here, there is a temptation for Jesus to use power for himself. And I am so thankful that he resists. The Jesus that we encounter here says, be gone, Satan. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord God and serve him alone. Jesus passes this test and gives thanks to God that he does this. He goes on to do what others could not do because he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Liberator. He does not come to deliver his kingdom by a sword, but by foolishness. 
by the way of the cross. This temptation comes to us and it begins the question about how we use power in our own lives. What price would we pay to gain the ultimate prize? Where in our lives do we seek or use power? Where do we exercise force? Where have we bought the lie that the kingdom should come by power and force? Where have our souls conspired in devil worship? When have we taken shortcuts to do the power grab? Here is where the gospels present a Jesus who speaks to us about how we might live and how we might use power. Jesus passes the tests here in this reading, in this moment in his life, by choosing the way in which God's appointed king should rule. Not by exploiting power for his selfish ends, not by turning stones into bread, not by simply meeting people's material needs, not by an act of self-promoting bravado and flinging himself off the temple to prove that he is God. Interestingly, I I read an interesting quote that said, no one honors God, Um, no one who flings himself off the pinnacle of the temple honors God when there are stairs available. And not, thirdly, by power to gain the whole world does Jesus submit or be tempted at every point through the stones, the bread, the circus, and the empire. Jesus rejects the temptation. Why? Well, because he's, he's our example, yes. We can, we can find solidarity because we all have our challenges. We all have our temptations and our trials. And we can find great solidarity with Jesus, yes. He shows us the way to pass these tests, to resist these temptations. But there's more for us today, Redeemer, to look at this passage. There's more for us because Jesus, he is the one. He is the one. We're encountering Jesus, a Jesus who's so committed to the way of God that he passes these tests once and for all. Why? So that in our failings, in our failings, in our falling to temptation, when we mess it up, when we get it wrong, which we do often, often church leaders do that more than anyone, we stand in the grace of Christ We throw ourselves on the one who did pass the test. We stand with the one who did not be seduced to simply meet immediate needs, to create spectacle or to misuse power. But we lean on the grace of Jesus. This is why this story is so important to us. And it's important to us because there's two other origin stories that this mirrors. Very, very quickly, let me mention them. There's the origin story of humanity. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden are faced with a temptation and they feel the test. There's the origin story of the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, which parallels the 40 days that Jesus is going through this test. 40 years in the wilderness, a story of wandering, a story of failure. Jesus' temptations parallel these, both of these stories of Adam and of Israel. The story of Adam in the garden, the story of Israel in the wilderness. But the question that lies behind this passage that we should bear in mind as we've read this passage is, 
Will this Jesus come through? Will this Jesus emerge faithful and true from his wilderness experience, from his temptations that come to him, or will he be seduced? Will the integrity of his mission be compromised? And the answer today is that we follow the one who is our savior, who succeeded in faithful partnership with God, where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where Israel's kings had failed, Jesus steps in and he completes the task. He is the perfect Adam in the story. He is the perfect Israel in the story. He is the perfect suffering servant king in the story. And he defeats evil at its own game. What a beautiful faithfulness today, Redeemer, we have in the life of Jesus, in this wilderness story, in this temptation passage, that Jesus would come and completely sub, subvert the power structures and, and bring liberation where others have failed. Hebrews says this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we have been, yet without sin. Today we rejoice that Jesus is our Savior King, that he has passed those tests, that he is the perfect one in which we bring our weakness and our failures and we lean into his grace and his victory. We can ruthlessly trust God's way is the true way to live, not by bread alone, not by faithless proof, not by misuse of power, but by the way of self-sacrificial love the way of the cross. This is the way that Jesus was establishing this new reign of God in the, on the earth. This is what saves the world, the foolishness of the cross. This is the Jesus that we encounter in this gospel passage, passing the test and moving in ruthless security in his identity, ruthless trust in the way of God and ruthless conviction to go the way of the narrow way of the cross. What about our own temptations? As we leave this place today, as we reflect on our own trials, there is comfort for us in the book of Hebrews. Chapter two, it says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the same way that Jesus resisted those temptations that challenged his identity, those three temptations of bread, circus, and empire. So we in faith today, the faith of a mustard seed, can resist the kind of temptations and stories that would try to rehumanize us, try to distort our humanity, and try to destroy us. But instead, we have an invitation this morning, Redeemer, in faith to worship the Lord God, to trust him in faith, and to live his way of self-sacrificial love in the world. There is a beautiful little verse, and I would encourage you to go home and read this passage. It's a key passage in the Lenten journey. It's a beautiful little phrase right at the end of this passage that says that once Jesus had conquered the tempter, he was immediately attended to by angels. There's a beautiful picture of victory in the kingdom in that verse 
where there is divine messengers, healers that come to minister to the Lord Jesus the Christ, restoring him, building him up, and preparing him for his mission ahead. Remember, fortified by this victory, Jesus goes on to go up to the Sermon Mount and preach about this new kingdom and the Beatitudes. That's, what's about to, that's what he's about to embark on. It's going to turn this world upside down. But here in this moment, behind closed doors, so to speak, Jesus passed those tests and he is ministered to by angels, which is a beautiful picture. And I believe that today there's people in this room that you're maybe struggling with all sorts of things, perhaps in your journey. And I want to say that there is divine healing, divine messengers, maybe a word even today from something that's been said or shared that would bring some kind of light into your darkness, some kind of healing and hope into your circumstances. I want to proclaim over you that God is with you in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your temptations. And there is a Savior who is good enough, sure enough, faithful enough to lean on because he has been there. He has passed that test and he invites you to take his hand and walk with him forward. Amen. I'd love us to stand. I'd love to invite Rebecca and the band up to lead us. I'd like to invite uh, Dan and Stephanie, and they're going to help me as we uh, take communion today. We practice, as you know, if you're part of the community here, as many, 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 many of you are, you know that the table is the high point of our, our gathering. And so um, we're going to come to the table. The table is Jesus' table. He makes the guest list. He invites you to it. He invites you with little faith or no faith to come to him today. He has got outstretched arms. He is waiting for you in grace. The one who is all sufficient to meet your needs. The one who is all sufficient to lead you through your trials. The one who has done it for you. He is present at the table in a way that is mysterious and beautiful and there's an invitation to you to come. The only qualification, the only reason uh, to come is that you want to be with Jesus at the table. You want to be with Jesus at his table. So if that's your desire today, you are more than welcome to come and break the bread. We'll not be taking wine today because of health considerations. So Dan and Steph are going to break the bread uh, for you. I want to reassure you that they have uh, washed their hands and it's clean and healthy, but I just encourage you just to take bread for yourself today. They will break it for you and they'll bless you. Um, and as we do, I'd love to just... Uh, lead us in a prayer. There's no communion at the back. It's all at the front today. And the beautiful thing today is that we have one beautiful gluten-free loaf of bread, which means that we are all eating from the same bread, which is a beautiful symbol of inclusion. And so there is no separate for anyone who has allergies. Come and take this bread. It's gluten-free. Let me lead us in a prayer um, this liturgy prayer I'm going to just uh, lead us in the last portion of it for time therefore O God we pray open wide your arms and surrender now to us the Holy Spirit poured out on these gifts of bread and wine that they may become for us the body of Christ broken for the world and the blood of Christ poured out for the many 
on the night before he died, Jesus came to a table with his disciples and he took the bread into his hands and gave thanks to it. O God of creation, he said the blessing, broke the bread and gave it to his beloved, saying, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body with, with which will be given up for you. And when the supper was ended, taking also the cup of wine into his hands and giving thanks to it, O God of redemption, he said the blessing and gave the cup to his beloved, saying, take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this cup is the cup of my blood, the cup of new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Thanks, Rebecca. Please come to the table and receive the bread. Amen.